0: Church family, go ahead and and turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Decided to to repreach what we were going to preach last week um, so as not to leave anyone hanging. And so we're going to go back to Leviticus 16. We're going to read verses 29 through 31. will be probably a full month on the Day of Atonement, which I think is appropriate considering its significance. Um, let's read this text again together, Leviticus 16, 29 through 31. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. First Baptist Church of Gables. the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious (laughs) Father, You are indeed good. We have already sung of Your promises this morning. Uh, Lord, that we get to be yours forever because you have sealed us in your blood by your Holy Spirit. Father, that you will hold us fast in the midst of life's turmoil and tribulation. That you are a faithful God who considers um, his people in pardoning their sin and giving them hope. And Father, we have a friend in you. Indeed, because... Uh, Lord, we were once your enemies, but you pursued us, loved us, and made us your friends. So we have sung tremendous things from your word this morning, and now as we prepare to hear your word preached, we pray that our hearts will be open, that we be receptive, that we would be actively engaging with what it is that you are saying to us through what we believe and know to be your word to us. Would you help us? Would you use it to mold us into the image of your Son? May we be a stronger church because of what is done here today. Not so that we can puff up to the world around us, but so we can honor you with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So again, two weeks ago, remember we, we looked at this text and we looked at kind of the chiastic structure. Um, we looked at kind of verse thirty. Because of that chiastic structure, verse thirty shows us very clearly that it is the main point of this particular Text That's found in verses 29 through 31, this epilogue to the Day of Atonement, if you will. In verse 30, what we saw was that the Lord, again, He demonstrated His patience, His mercy through the Day of Atonement. It was, again, it was a demonstration of what the Lord had revealed about Himself to Moses in Exodus 34. We looked at that. Uh, That text in Exodus 34, that tells us the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So the Day of Atonement, this, this scapegoat ritual that we've looked at this particular day that was known as the day in the life of first century Jew, Exhibit A, that the Lord is merciful and gracious. It was a picture, it was proof positive. The Day of Atonement, therefore, was to be a standing promise for the people. That even though they did sin against the Lord and sinned against Him greatly, that their God would forgive them. And so today, what we're going to pick up is the outer portion of that chiasm. We look really at verse 30 two weeks ago. I want us to look at verse 29 and 31 today. Because there's some things in there that as we're reading, even though we put it in the little spots that, it, that we needed to go, that can be confusing for us if we don't understand them. Again, 29 and 31, they're verses that repeat each other in reverse Order. So, in effect, you have in verse 29 three main points. The when, the what, and the who. Specifically, the statute forever or the affliction of your souls and the do no work at all or keeping the Sabbath of solemn rest. Remember, those two things are synonymous. What you find in verse 29, again, is repeated in verse 31 in reverse order. And remember the significance. This part is the instructions for Israel. Okay, Up until this point, everything has just been given to Aaron or whoever the high priest is. But here, the third person, personal pl- pronoun, he, becomes you all. Or as we say in Callahan, y'all, right? It's not proper in English, but it is proper in Hebrew. Be encouraged. Uh, so now, the people of Israel are being instructed on what they should do on the Day of Atonement. And, and what we find here, again, it, it's simple but profound. It is straightforward and kind of to the point. We might even argue, does this really require a sermon? And yet, I think we'll see it's extremely instructive. They are to afflict their souls and rest from all their work. This is the mandate given by the Lord for His people as the appropriate response to the atonement He was providing for them on this day. And so the big idea then we find in verses 29 and 31 is simply this. A proper response to mercy and grace is humble self-denial and faithful submission. Proper response to mercy and grace is humble self-denial and faithful submission. I want us to see it in the text, and we're going to go through the first point very, very quickly here because I think it's pretty obvious and extremely straightforward. Because initially, we want to look at the when and the who. That's really the first thing we need to see. Uh, the when in the who is something that 's addressed in verse twenty nine where it says, "Well, the when is is very clear, right? What does it start with? This shall be a statute forever for you. This is ongoing it 's indefinite it 's a perpetual command to be followed year after year again it 's to be followed or performed in the seventh month of the tenth, uh, uh, seventh month on the tenth day that is the month of tishri in the hebrew calendar they worked on a lunar calendar so it likely would, would change a little bit every year but it's around the september october and somewhere in the fall so uh, not only the wind forever but also the who is addressed this is not just a commandment for israel but it's a commandment for everybody who is in the midst of israel that means foreigners sojourners strangers as they are referred to in our text Uh, Now, eventually, when Israel would come into the promised land, it would include anybody and everybody that takes residence in Israel. So that's the when and the who. That's like the shortest first point in a sermon you've probably ever heard. Uh, But now we want to focus this morning on the what. This one will be a little longer. What are the specific instructions given to the people of Israel? Very clearly, it's that you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. So, so here's what's interesting, is this is verse 29 through 31. There's three verses here on instructions to Israel. We had one through 28, really, really three through 28 instructions to the high priest. And, and they're all very specific given to the, the, the high priest. But here we go straight to the point with Israel. It's simply, you shall afflict your souls and do no work. That's simple, straightforward, and as we'll see, extremely profound. Two things we find here. We find a mandate and a prohibition. A mandate, they are to afflict themselves. And a prohibition, they are to do no work. Let's look at each in turn. The first, a mandate. You shall afflict your souls. Again, as it's translated in the New American Standard 95 version, it tells us that you shall humble your souls. As it's translated in the New International Version, you must deny yourself. Of course, this is... An imperative, meaning it is a commandment from the Lord to his people. And I really believe that the best picture and the best way we can capture this command is to really combine what the New American Standard 95 says and the NIV says. It captures the idea. It is both a humbling of one's soul and also a denying of one's self. The Israelites were to humble and deny themselves. And in that, they're capturing both the internal and the external element of this particular command. Israelites were to humble their souls. It was to acknowledge that they were unclean, that they were sinful, that they were in desperate need of a Savior and atonement. Humble your souls would communicate what their attitude or their disposition in all of life was to be. It was internal, it focused on their heart. But the Israelites were also to deny themselves. There was an external demonstration to their inward disposition. A humbling of their souls was to be shown by their self-denial. And the primary way that they would deny themselves externally on this day would be by fasting. It's worth noting that the Day of Atonement actually is the only time in all of the law that fasting is required for the people of Israel. Out of all the prescriptions in the penitent, the Day of Atonement is the only time that it is required. Which is why, when we look at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 27, verse 9, we refer to the Day of Atonement simply to be referred to as the fast. And so, there were many reasons to fast in ancient Israel, but the primary reason on the Day of Atonement was to demonstrate this humbling of soul that the Lord required. And that's not an uncommon reason for fasting throughout all of the Old Testament. When you look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, we read this. We read, So they gathered at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We've sinned against the Lord. Their fasting was a demonstration of the acknowledgement of their sin. They had been told that they had sinned. They had acknowledged that and were fasting before the Lord to show that they repented of their sins. Really, I, I think as I was, I was just thinking about this concept, the best example of fasting as a demonstration of humbling one's soul comes from a wicked Gentile city, Nineveh. Most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah, is that correct? Jonah is sent to call them to repentance. They're, they're warned that their city will be destroyed. And then in Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us this. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Don't don't miss how this begins. The people of Nineveh believed God, period. The prophet of God came, said, destruction is imminent. You've sinned greatly against the Lord. He's bringing destruction against your sinning. And their response was belief. They believed the Lord, and so what did they do in response to that belief? They put on a fast, called for sackcloth, from the greater of them to the least of them. Verse 6 Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king takes off his royal attire, and covers himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. It's a demonstration of his inward repentance and humility. And then we'll finish the text. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every one turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Friends, that's a humbling of a soul. That's the picture. That is what this fasting was to demonstrate. It was not merely an external act. It was to reflect the inward acknowledgement that Israel was sinful because of their defiling thoughts, words, and deeds. They were in desperate need of what the Day of Atonement would bring. Atonement, forgiveness, cleansing for the people. Their fasting, their self-denial was a demonstration of repentance and humbling of the soul. And so the goal of the command for the Israelites to afflict their souls was humble self-denial. This was the role. This is what Israel was to bring on the Day of Atonement. Humble self-denial was the appropriate response from a people who were receiving from the Lord such extraordinary mercy and such amazing grace. I mean, if you think about it, the reality is when it comes to Israel, they brought nothing to the Day of Atonement except their own sin. Like unlike every other sacrifice we've seen in the first 16 chapters of Leviticus that has been discussed thus far, Israel themselves here on the Day of Atonement, they bring no offering. There's one offering that's made on behalf of them. But the individual Israelites are not the ones who bring it. They have not earned this day. Israel was not deserving of the Day of Atonement, and the Lord was not obligated to give the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a display of the Lord's unmerited favor, His undeserving mercy. And so our verse says, Afflict your souls because atonement is being made for you. Don't miss that verse 30 does not begin with, So that the atonement will be made for you. It begins with, Instead of, or for, because on that day the priest shall make for you to cleanse you. This was a response. It was a response not to accomplish that which the Lord would do through his mediator. Israelites were to corporately humble their souls because they were being made clean before the Lord from all their sins. Listen, we have to know that this cleansing was accomplished for them, not by them. It's pivotal, because as we think about the law, and we even think about the book of Leviticus, we see a lot of stuff for the people to do. I've had so many questions from you, and I've, one of the things I've really enjoyed about this series the amount of discussion we get to have about Old Testament law together. I just I love Old Testament theology. If I was ever to get a doctorate, I won't. If I was ever to get a doctorate, it would be in Old Testament theology. But the, the reality is, we have to understand this, because Leviticus 16 has a lot for the people of God to do. And yet, none of that was accomplished by their doing. Even then, in the Old Testament, this day of atonement was accomplished on their behalf for them, not by them. A mediator had to atone for their sins and their uncleanness. Ultimately, the Lord had to provide a way, and He had to accept it. And so Israel provided the sin and defilement, and the Lord and His mediator provided the atonement. Their response was not the grounds for their atonement the grounds was a sin offering and the scapegoat ritual that pointed toward the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That true and better scapegoat that carried all of our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. And this is my point in all of this. The mandate to humble their souls. Friends, it is the only appropriate response to the grace and mercy of God on the Day of Atonement. It's the only response that makes absolutely any sense in light of what God is accomplishing on their behalf. There's no room here for pride or boasting among God's people. I mean, listen, it it was like someone had had been diagnosed with a brain tumor, and there was no entering the surgery room all by themselves in order to operate and remove the tumor. They were in a desperate situation. They had to humble themselves and faithfully submit to the one who is going to perform the operation. Friends, that's critical for us to see. See, the humbling of soul referred to here is more than the virtue of humility that we so often hear about. Even in Christian circles. I'm sure everyone has heard that humility can be described as not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And, and listen... I don't think any of us would argue we probably should think of ourselves less and think of others more. Certainly. That's not what this verse is referring to. As I look at humility, as, as we're called to display it throughout Scripture, I very rarely see it in those terms. Here's the idea of humility the idea was not thinking of themselves less, the idea was thinking of themselves rightly. That was the idea it was not thinking of themselves less it was thinking of themselves rightly it's as i said a couple of weeks ago coming to terms that we are actually far more sinful than either us neither un, any of us would like to acknowledge that's what we find in the word of god the israelites they were commanded to not think of themselves less on the day of atonement but to think of themselves rightly of their uncleanness and their sin to consider the, the judgment they deserved and to humble themselves in light of the grace and mercy of God. To acknowledge their total depravity that sin had left its mark on every aspect of humanity. Their works throughout the year were, were more than sufficient to condemn them all. And yet on the day of atonement, the Lord would forgive all their transgressions and sins. And so they were to cultivate a contrite spirit and a broken heart. They were to humble their souls. This was the idea behind this text. You shall afflict your souls. Jesus, by the way, demands the exact same response from all who claim to love and follow him. In the Sermon on the Mount, you're probably already thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught that his disciples would recognize their spiritual poverty. Matthew 5 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' disciples would mourn. ...over their own moral bankruptcy. In verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Said another way, Jesus taught His disciples to humble their souls. This is the same thing. Jesus painted a word picture of what humblings one's soul would look like for His disciples. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 18. I want us to look at this together. Luke chapter 18... This is maybe one of the best uh, demonstrations or parables of what a humbling of souls looks like. Many of us know this as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But I want us to consider this. I want us to read Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. Just this parable that Jesus gives. The Word of God says this. It says, Also he, being Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves... ...that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, "...God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess." And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the picture, Right? The tax collector standing far off, unwilling to even raise his head to heaven, beating his chest. You can just picture this man, unkempt, clothes torn and sackcloth and ashes, crying out to the Lord, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But friends, of course, Jesus not only taught this, he not only taught a humbling of soul, but Jesus was the ready for your, your big words part of the sermon, was the quintessential preeminent, soul-humbling, covenant servant. He was the quintessential, preeminent, soul-humbling, covenant servant. I know that's a lot of adjectives, but I just... when you're writing about Jesus, there's a lot of things you can describe him with. Jesus... listen, Jesus did not think of himself less. This, This wasn't why he was humble. Jesus thought of himself rightly... Jesus in his humanity humbled his soul by identifying with sinners and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, him who knew no sin humbled his soul to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the world has never known greater humility. The reality is Jesus did not need to humble himself. Right, He certainly didn't need to humble himself for sin because he was sinless. But, but nor did he have to humble himself for us. But Jesus humbled himself anyway because of our poverty of spirit. He humbled himself because of our defiled souls. He humbled himself because of our uncleanness and sin. The greatest humbling of the soul ever experienced was accomplished by the one who had no need to humble his soul. That's the gospel. The one who could have justly exalted his soul, humbled his soul for our sake. Listen, Christian. How do we respond to so great a mercy? How do we respond to such amazing grace? It is humble self-denial. That is really our call if we understand the gospel. We must learn to think rightly about ourselves. And, And I'll admit... It is not easy in our culture. I mean, you hear these words thinking you understand in reality miss it because our culture rails against this in every way. But as the people of God, we must reject our pop psychology culture that promotes self-esteem in the place of humble self-denial. If Israel was to humble their souls and deny themselves on the Day of Atonement, Church, how much more should the followers of Jesus Christ humble ourselves and deny our or, or humble our souls and deny ourselves? Listen, I, I, listen. I know that we know this. I get that. I know that we know this. But let's think about it again. You need to hear it because we're tempted to forget it. You and I bring nothing to our salvation but sin. That's what we bring. Nothing but our sin and defilement. And the reality is, as diverse and beautiful as our testimonies may be, our testimonies at their core are exactly the same. You were a wretched sinner that was undeservedly saved by the sovereign grace and mercy of God, just like me. The only thing that you have earned or merited in your entire life is death and eternal judgment. That's it. We have lied. We have stolen. We have committed adultery. We are not as sweet, selfless, and compassionate as we want to think we are. And and listen, I apologize if I'm undoing years of therapy here, but this is the truth. I mean, look, have we ever really been like the tax collector? Have we? Think about it. Is it possible... That you and I tend to be so much more like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. Thank you, Lord, for making me a good Christian as opposed to those nominal Christians that attend that other church. Thank you, Lord, for making me reformed in my doctrine. I'm so thankful you didn't make me like those Arminian dogs. Thank you for making me so much more morally upright than my drunken neighbor. Thank you, Lord. Brothers and sisters, hear this. The temptation to adopt an arrogant attitude toward others is so subtle and yet so powerful. So I ask again, do we really humble our souls before the Lord? Is that our general disposition as we interact with other people? If I may, if you're sitting here listening to this this morning and you're not a Christian, I simply want to tell you that what I'm saying to you right now is a warning it's a warning. You are commanded by the creator of the universe to humble your souls before him. If you've never done so, then you have no right in Christ and you have no protection from the judgment of the Lord. You have no stake in the day of atonement nor do you have any stake in the day of calvary. You have no hope in this world or in the next. And so my, my call to you is, look, please, humble your soul. So, the Israelites had this exhortation, afflict your souls, humble your souls by self-denial, as we see. But it was coupled, this mandate was coupled with this prohibition, that they shall do no work. Humble your souls, that's the mandate. The prohibition is, do no work. Really, if the idea behind you shall afflict your souls is humble one's soul is demonstrated through self-denial then the idea behind you shall do no work is really trust as the inward disposition and faithful submission as the demonstration of that. I realize the command to afflict your souls, look, that might seem depressing, particularly in today's culture. But the beauty is is that command does not stand alone. It was not just afflict yourselves, but afflict your souls and do no work. It was a Sabbath of solemn rest for you. See, on the Day of Atonement, Israel was not only demonstrating the humility of their souls as they acknowledged their sin before a holy God, but they were also to rest from all of their labors. They were to cease from all of their normal daily endeavors. And specifically, this meant laying aside anything that didn't include works of necessity. Like eating, for instance, or or works of mercy, tending to the lame or poor or worship. Anything that did not fall into those categories was generally considered work. So while a Sabbath did provide physical rest, this was not the primary reason for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not first and foremost a vacation. It was a demonstration of Israel's trust in the Lord. That was the point. So the big idea behind that commandment to do no work on the day of atonement is trust that the Lord would forgive Israel and that they would be clean from all their sin before the Lord. This is why I refer to this mandate to cease from work as an uh, uh, this prohibition to cease from work as an act of faithful submission, because it required trust on behalf of Israel to lay aside their labor and endeavors in order to sit still before the Lord. Sabbaths are kind of like the game uh, Red Light, Green Light. That's one of my kids' favorite games, right? Mostly because I just keep them on red light and see how long I can keep them still. Um, Israel's busy doing what it's doing because it's got a green light. The Lord says red light in the Sabbath, and they stop. Why? Because the Lord said so. It's faithful submission, Cessation of work was a demonstration of belief that the Lord is sovereign and He ultimately provides all good gifts. The Lord is a gracious provider. It was a demonstration of trust in the Lord's promise to atone for their sins and make them clean. And so there it is. A command for faithful submission. The faithful submission mandated in our text is really, it's an extension of the humble self-denial. The two are, are connected together. They're two sides of the same coin. Not... Unlike faith and repentance, it was the response to the Lord's salvation on the Day of Atonement. They would be clean before the Lord, and so how were the people of Israel respond? They were to humble their souls in repentance and trust the Lord. Maybe the way Israel was saved really wasn't so different from the way that we're saved, after all. See, church family, if humble self denial is the result of thinking rightly about oneself. Faithful submission is the result of thinking rightly about the Lord. If humble self-denial is the result of thinking rightly about ourselves, then this faithful submission is the result of thinking rightly about the Lord. Knowing the Lord and trusting Him would cause the Israelites to walk in obedience to this command. They were to demonstrate their faithful submission on every day of atonement if they really believed that God was their sovereign King and Savior. In addition, the humbling of their souls would actually cause the faithful submission. It would actually create the environment for that faithful submission. And what I mean by this is sincere acknowledgement of their sinful state, their humble position before a just and holy God, should at least cause Israel to turn towards God as their only hope of salvation. Seeing the poverty of their own ability to bring about or merit anything before God, they were reminded that they were not the architects of their own atonement. God was not joining with them in the work of atonement. The Lord was doing it and the Lord alone. There was only one mediator, the high priest, and one Lord who made the way and accepted it. Israel was to again be like the tax collector who had come to the end of the self... ...recognizing his utter bankruptcy and ceased from all of his striving to cry out before the Lord... ...God have mercy on me, a sinner. And so at the heart of Sabbath rest is trust demonstrated by faithful submission. Trust that the Lord is good and faithful, that He would provide. And on the Day of Atonement, trust the Lord would forgive. Now of course, the ultimate demonstration of faithful submission... ...is really the, the passion of Christ. The ultimate demonstration of faithful submission is the passion of Christ. By passion of Christ, of course, I meant specifically His last week... ...as He moves toward His crucifixion. See, in that specific act, Jesus completely trusted in His Father's promise and provision. He willingly laid down His life, trusted God to raise Him up. Don't Listen, don't minimize or dismiss that because we know that Jesus is fully God... In his humanity, it is still the greatest act of faithful submission that anyone has ever seen or proclaimed. He did not work to preserve his own life, but he willingly gave it up. Mind you, he could have, right? He, he did not remind, did he not remind Peter with a simple call out to the Father that he could bring to his aid 12 legions of angels? This was the ultimate demonstration of faithful submission. And now, brothers and sisters, because of his faithful submission, it is finished. Because of his faithful submission, it is finished. That's why, get this, it's why we have now ceased from all of our labors. This is why we have set aside all of those works of the law that pointed toward Christ. Now, we simply rest in Him. Now we simply receive that Sabbath rest. We no longer work to keep the law in order to merit anything in the eyes of God. We faithfully instead submit ourselves to our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As a writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, three, For we who have believed do enter that rest. He therefore exhorts us, Let us strive to enter that rest. We've entered it, and yet we're striving to enter it. See, we enter that rest by placing our faith in Christ. And so we strive together to enter that rest because we faithfully submit in the provision, mercy, and grace of God. I just want to conclude with this. The consideration of the reality of what we are apart from the grace of God, I know it's disturbing and it should be. It's depressing to consider what we really are apart from God. It disturbs us, and it's meant to, because it's meant to humble our souls. But it's the truth that we continually need to hear. Why? Because we want to reject it. But listen, that truth about what we are, apart from the grace of God, it does not leave us beating our chest, crying out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the starting point. It is. That starting point is inseparably linked to our rest in Jesus Christ. Yes, we do beat our chest and cry out the Lord at the start. But then, like Jesus tells us in the parable, remember how it ends? I tell you, this man, this tax collector, who was beating on his chest, crying out, Dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner, went to his house. What? Justified. Amen. You better believe that after that self-beating he gave himself and that humbling of soul he gave before the presence of the Lord, that that man went down celebrating as he went to his own house. So I'm not exhorting us here to to simply tear our, our clothes and beat our chest. I'm exhorting us to never forget what we are apart from the grace of God. That in itself should inform all of our interaction with other people. Think about it. We all have difficult people in our lives. I'm probably one of yours at some point, I'd imagine. Friends, who you are apart from God's grace should inform how you treat them. How quickly it is when we deal with difficult people, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, we immediately think, why can't they be? You know what you really want to say there? Like me. Fill in whatever you want. It's pride. But remembering what you are apart from the grace of God, friends, it is the fuel for you to demonstrate and show that grace to one another. What we are apart from the grace of God should also inform every bit of our worship. It should inform about the way we sing to our God. When we sing these gospel-enriched songs, we should be reminded of not only what we are were but what we are now in Christ Christ is mine forevermore forever He sealed me with a promise that I'm his and he's mine I get accused of singing loudly here and sometimes I don't sing as loud as I should friends I'll tell you right now you don't sing as loud as you should and one of the reasons you don't is because you forgot what you once were You have forgotten what you were apart from the grace of God. It should inform the way we sing. It should inform the way we pray. It should inform the way we give. It should inform the way we fellowship. It should inform the way we conclude our services together. It should inform how we proclaim the gospel. The way we live our lives in every respect should be informed about what we once were. But not just that, but who we are now in Christ. When we hold these two together, what we actually have is what the psalmist ultimately writes in Psalm 130, which I want to close with. This is an expression of the overall disposition of the Israelites on the Day of Atonement. This is really the humbling of one's soul and the faithful submission of one's life to a loving and merciful God. I want to read it to you. It starts this way. Out of the depths, I have cried to you, O Lord. Sound familiar? Out of the depths, the, the humbling of the soul. Lord, hear my voice. It's a plea for forgiveness, a plea for grace and mercy. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Then in verse 3, we're given a reality check. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There would be no hope. We would all be condemned. But, this this is a good but, there's forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Praise God. So, because of that, Faithful submission, here it is. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Picture there, by the way, is of a guard who's standing on the wall. And his duty is to the nighttime hour. And he longs for the day. He's weary. And he longs for the sun to rise. Friends, we long for that rest which still awaits us. Yes, we enter that rest, but we strive to enter that rest. We long for Christ to return and experience it fully. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption, complete and whole redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Praise be to God. I'm going to invite our deacons to now come forward to the front row as we prepare um, to take the Lord's Supper. Would you join me as we close our services in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we are humbled before you, for we are a sinful and wretched people. Lord, we dare not comprehend all of our sin, or it would absolutely break us. And so we confess that we are far more wretched than we care to admit. Lord, we are far more deserving of your wrath than we care to admit. We thank you that we are far more loved than we deserve. We thank you that we've received far more mercy than we can possibly imagine. That we have far more grace in Christ than we know what to do with. Father, would you be honored in our lives? Would you help us? to live lives of great humility as we dwell on this truth that we are wretched sinners saved by Your amazing grace being transformed into the image of Your Son. Father, our lives are Yours. Let them be a pleasing offering to You. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.